You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I chat with Otman Loraki, co-founder of Color Genomics. We chat about the challenges and opportunities in genetic testing, the future of precision medicine, and the hurdles medicine and healthcare are currently facing, and how we can overcome them. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's start with a bit about your background and how you came to found a genetics testing company. Sure. Um, so my background was um, essentially entirely in, in the software world. I uh, studied computer science uh, in school and then started several software companies. I spent several years at Google, um, then started a company that got acquired by Twitter where I was running uh, the product organization there or part of it. After that, my kind of professional life took a bit of a personal turn where my um, uh, grandmother had passed away from breast cancer. My mother had survived two of them. Um, and uh, because of that, we found out that she was, was a carrier of a BRCA2 mutation. And I found out I'm a carrier myself. So it had been something that had been part of my personal and family life for a long time. But about three years ago, I decided to, uh, with uh, my co-founders, start working in, in this field, um, in part because... Genetics, we felt, had come to a point where the there was an opportunity to have a very big impact by essentially mixing some of the best of the biology world with software, whereas in many ways genetics had started to become in part a software problem. And it felt like it was starting to be possible to uh, build products that made genetics accessible to a much broader population uh, by both uh, dropping costs as well as increasing access. So making this information more accessible to a much broader population in a, in a scalable way, essentially. Right. And so what are the biggest challenges, technical challenges that you've faced so far? You mentioned scalability. What What are some of the biggest hurdles you've had to overcome? Sure. So I guess in terms of context, uh, so in terms of the product that we that 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 we uh, that we built. Um, so there's a set of there are a set of genes um, that dramatically predispose people to to cancer. Um, so the most uh, well known ones are probably the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Um, for example, the BRCA1 gene takes a woman's risk from about 10% in her life to over 80%. Uh, however, if she knows about it early, um, she's able to start working with her doctor to get screened much earlier, which has a dramatic effect on outcomes. Um, and, you know, because if you catch a cancer much earlier, you're actually able to have uh, much easier treatment and better outcomes. Um, and so in terms of the technical challenges, there are many, <laughs> but uh, the um, in some ways, the, the science for what we're doing has been established for quite a while. Um, what uh, had not yet really been done is um, operationalizing it uh, to work at scale. And that's where the kind of being in part of software company really came into play, um, where, for example, on the, on the laboratory side, uh, building a lot of robotics um, and integrating software to be able to really control the process to be able to do it at a much lower cost because you have a much higher yield, essentially. Um, but one of the big areas that's kind of those technically challenging and is challenging, I think, for the field and is something that we've, we've put a lot of work in is in running the bioinformatics because um, essentially you have you know, this raw data that comes out of a sequencer and you have this relatively involved tool chain or set of uh, stages that the data needs to go through in order to become usable or interpretable for someone. And historically, a lot of the software that's used clinically emerged out of research. So I had never really gone through the such industrialization process. And so one of the challenges in the field is running this software that really had been built in many cases to run on supercomputers at relatively small scale to instead run in distributed systems environments at very high scale with a lot of reliability. And so, uh, for example, we built a lot of 
uh, systems to essentially control that and be able to ensure the reliability and scalability of, of these systems. That's an example of something that's been uh, quite, quite an interesting area and uh, I think uh, where the field I think is moving pretty quickly. Right. And I noticed that you had a machine learning expert on your team. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the role of machine learning in genetics testing? Sure. Um, you know, I think there's there are many ways in which um, it comes into play. The I think one of the big areas for machine or opportunities for machine learning in genetics, for example, is around the interpretation of the effects of specific genetic changes. And uh, where, you know, right now there's there are a set of, for example, um, guidelines or processes that are used by the industry around the interpretation of how a specific mutation impacts a gene. And it's a kind of a very, like a, a structured process that's very labor intensive, but it's one, one of those areas where it's a, I think over time is going to become something that's very heavily solved by machine learning because it's a, essentially, a, there's a lot of data essentially that can be used to train a model um, instead of like purely running it in a manual way. And that's something where, you know, I think um, the industry is going to evolve quite a bit over over the next few years, um, where I think machine learning is going to have a very substantial impact there. Right. All right. And so we talked a little bit about the technical challenges. What about the social and cult- cultural challenges yeah. you face so far? You know, what, what I think one of the biggest uh, social challenges, um, I think in health in general, but has been um, even bigger deal in, in genetics is uh, is around uh, access um, and uh, the, you know the v- very large disparity in access from a s- social like you know how wealthy someone is as well as I mean there's a very big ethnic gap as well um, you know historically a lot of genetic testing had been very relatively concentrated around Caucasians and and so that has two effects um, the first one is a lot of the fair amount of the, the kind of the scientific knowledge is based on a Caucasian heavy data set. And that has implications in terms of how well we understand the genetics of, of other ethnicities. And, and so over time, as you know, and now it's getting more democratized, that's it's yielding a lot of new insights about, you know, for example, understanding mutations that, uh, for example, are common in, in Asian populations that, you know, up to now had been uh, very difficult to interpret. Now as more you get more larger Asian population getting sequenced now are able to actually understand what is going on under the hood? Um, but the second, the second social piece there too, though, is you know we're already at a point today where that information can be used to provide a, a very substantial health benefit um, for for people who are, for example, at risk for developing cancer. For example, whether they are able to access the information, they let lets them know so that they can work with their doctor to do something about it. Um, and so that access gap um, has been very significant because you know historically these tests have cost thousands of dollars and uh, most people do not qualify. In order to qualify, you have to have an extreme level of family history and you need to have insurance coverage. Otherwise, you need to pay a lot of money. And so the only people who can afford it are either uh, people who have extreme levels of family history or are, have a lot of, or are very wealthy. And that's one thing we've seen that, you know, that I think can have a very big effect for people is really broadening that access. And so, for example, one of the things we did uh, that we're, we're very proud of is um, the day we launched, we, we uh, created this program called the Every Woman Program where Whenever someone buys a test uh, from Color, um, they can also contribute to fund testing for someone who can't afford it. Mm. Um, and then we work with a number of um, uh, cancer centers, uh, for example, uh, UCSF and University of uh, Washington, uh, Morehouse in Georgia, and a number of others where 
each one of those centers work with underprivileged populations, and they can provide uh, tests for free for for people who can't afford it, but who should be, who, who the doctors think should get tested. Right. And what are the bigger issues around insurance? Why is it not covered, and what what needs to change to to change that? Yeah. So in some ways, a lot of the policies have been designed in a in a world where these tests cost thousands of dollars. So if you have something that costs that much, you have to essentially control who gets access to it, right? And so when when you have something that's that expensive, the which was I think a reasonable thing at the time when it, when this was originally designed was to say, okay, the you know we'll prioritize people who have an extreme level of family history. So if someone has had you know a mother and a sister who developed breast cancer early, like you know under the age of forty, for example, you know that would qualify someone. Um, and so really focusing on that population because that increases the likelihood that they have a mutation. But it turns out half of the people who are carriers don't have that level of family history in order to qualify. And so now that we've transitioned to a point where these tests are much more affordable, now all of a sudden it's worthwhile or it's for from a payer standpoint to consider it for the entire population. Um, and for example, that's what we're seeing with um, through our um, enterprise program where Companies like like O'Reilly Media offer it to their entire employee base um, as a as a health benefit. Um, and it's you know completely an individual choice, but at least it helps the access problem. So you know people are able to have access and they can decide whether they want to do it with with their doctors. Right. And more on the the cultural side, what kinds of engagement are you seeing? Are are people really embracing the genetics testing, or are they kind of setting back and saying, I don't know if I want to? Do yeah, that's it's a great question. I mean, it's uh you know one of the things I think that's a big hinge, I think, for people around how they think about the, the question is, you know, sometimes people ask, you know, do I want to find out? And, you know, I don't want to know if I, you know, I have this, you know, thing hanging over my head for my entire life. And I think where I think things change is when, is when it's really, when, when it's actionable. And so, and what is the value of that information? Because, the, you know, whether someone knows about it or not, the reality of that risk is there, right? So if someone's a carrier of a mutation, you know, the, they have that risk. What the question is, okay, if you know that information, are you able to do something meaningful about it? And that's something that's been cha- evolving quite a bit. And now we're at the point where, you know, for example, there's the NCCN, which is a national body that, um, that for example, has, provides very specific guidelines for a lot of these genes where it's like if for, for a woman who has a BRCA1 mutation, for example, there are very specific guidelines around screening at an earlier age, for example, that have very meaningful impacts on outcomes. And so I think that's where people's thinking changes a little bit but ultimately it is very obviously very much a personal choice like i can i can understand like the the i mean i've you know been through it myself and you know with myself and my family members and so it is you know ultimately it's something that you know it is i think it does remain very much a, a personal choice on how and when people decide to whether they should get tested right and kind of shifting gears just a little bit what role do you see genetics testing playing in precision medicine yeah it's uh you know i think we're at this very exciting time. I mean, we're we've been um, you know participants in the Precision Medicine Initiative uh, uh, by the White House that President Obama launched about a year ago, and it's um, you know something that I think is you know I think in general with health, like it's a in many ways a very much a data problem. I mean, there's like in some ways almost as much as it is a biology problem. I said, and the, you know there's the science. There's there's so much that has been achieved on the scientific side, and but the implementation and deploying it at scale is in many ways a data problem and um and it's something where i think precision medicine i think is a is that co- combination where it's when the data meets 
the science. Um, and and I think we are now coming to that transition where you know genetics, I think, is one of the you know one of the anchors for that. But I think there are many different areas where that becomes very meaningful, right? Like for example, connecting EMR data um, in a in a way where you know. If you go to a different doctor and or correlating, you know, detailed family and treatment history uh, with outcomes, you know, over the long run, et cetera, these are things I think that will really change a how we do research, but also how healthcare is carried out. Because, like, you know, I think in some ways, you know, the, the practice of healthcare I think is one of those things that's going to be very heavily impacted by machine learning in some ways. Because you know, the way healthcare works today is that um, you know we described as a from a computer scientist view. It's essentially an expert system where, you know, there's a rule set, a set of rules where that are, we've designed that are small enough that they can fit into a normal person's brain. And, you know, you go to school for a few years and you get those rules loaded into you and that we call it, and those are doctors basically, right? And they're applying a relatively consistent set of rules with the set of inputs that are at, within the reach of what we can, we can deal with as a human being. But now with, with the precision medicine, the question is like, okay, you know, if I walk into my doctor, they should maybe have access to, they should be able to use my entire genome, uh, my glucose reading over the last month, my heart rate, my sleeping patterns, et cetera, et cetera, like much more data than, than what an individual human being can compute. And so the question is, how does that data meet medical practice? And I think that's where at that point now where there are already scenarios where that data is becoming very useful. And I think that's kind of a beginning in some ways of really the introduction of uh, you know machine learning and, and and big data, quote unquote, into the actual practice of daily healthcare uh, beyond kind of the you know the you know the five reads that a doctor would make in order to make a decision about you know your health. Right. And so, how do you envision medicine and, and healthcare evolving? Like, what's it going to look like in twenty years? What's yeah. What's your big vision? Yeah. So, I think it's it's essentially related to the this uh, transition into I think the combination of uh you know the ability to harness a massive amount of a massive amount of data because you know each one of us is carrying and generating a tremendous amount of data in our in our daily lives, right? And you know it's whether it's our genome, our microbiome, et cetera, et cetera. And I think so far. The link between that data and health practice has been had been through the path of research and translation into a few um, proxies, essentially, where it's kind of you know researchers collect a lot of data, they do research study, it turns into a, a set of conclusions, and that over time gets turned into what a few rules that get introduced into medical practice, like oh you know if someone's you know lipid levels are at this level, et cetera, then you draw these kinds of conclusions. Whereas I think now we're coming to the point where the amount of data that you're that a doctor should will, will be able to use in a real way to make medical decisions is going to be you know the full data set of our bodies, right. uh, which I think is very exciting and, and can have a very big impact. A lot more context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so. and so when you're doing reading and research in the area of your work, what is it? that you're reading? Like, what kinds of things would you recommend to people? And what are the most exciting emerging aspects that you're finding? Yeah. Um, you know, there are, there are a number of uh, great publications. And, you know, actually one uh, um, uh, couple of books that are amazing primers, I think, for for this space are by both by Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote a book a few years ago called uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, which was uh, around the history of cancer. Um, and then, uh, and then he just published one called the gene. And I think those are both, uh, you know, just a very accessible way to, you know, get a, a view, you know, of, 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 of the space. But in terms of kind of like the evolution, I think there are a number of aspects to it. I think one is just the raw 
the technology, the sequence, the, the evolution of sequencing technology is still very exciting. Uh, we're we're still in that in that cost curve now, where you know the cost is, has been dropped has dropped at a, a tremendous rate over the last fifteen years, and I think we still have a few years of that. Um, and so, and that really starts bringing into making it really feasible to sequence a lot of people, uh, at, like sequence a lot of data for each person at a very large scale. So, you know, doing it's, it makes it worthwhile for a lot of people's genetics to, to actually be tested and from a from an economic standpoint because I think that's what makes it feasible at scale, right? Like when it becomes worthwhile for for payers whether it's governments, insurance, uh, insurances or or companies who who pay for for uh, healthcare for their employees. And I think the side effect of that is that it's going to generate uh, a level of data that I think will allow us to, you know, push the science to the next level. I think there's been, you know, in some ways I feel like, you know, right now we've, you know, we've come to this point where there's been enough data and science behind us that we can already create a lot of value. And I think that allows the bootstrapping of doing things at a, at a massive scale that I think really takes us to that like long tail distribution of insights around, you know, how genetics work and how the, the body works. Right. And so to close on a more personal note, what people and projects are you following? What are you finding personally exciting these days? Yeah, I guess, uh, let's see, some of the people or projects that I follow, you know, the uh, an area that's kind of completely somewhat unrelated to uh, to my you know day job. But, um, you know, I've, I think the evolution of both AI as well as public policy around how we think about these technologies, et cetera, I think has been, I think is very, still very interesting. I don't feel I'm, I have the depth of knowledge to, to, to feel very insightful about it, but it's, I, I think it's just a, I think we're at a, also a very interesting stage there. Um, I tend to be more quite optimistic by nature. So I, uh, so I'm not by default, uh, as concerned about, uh, you know, the, the, the control of the technology, at least where it is now. But you know, again, that might be more a side effect of my very basic understanding of it, as opposed to, uh, you know, having a deep insight about why it would not be uh, dangerous. Well, interesting. Thank you very much for talking with me today. It's been fun. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can find Otman on Twitter at Otman. That's O-T-H-M-A-N. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 